Good morning again. Scripture reading for today is from Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. And this is the word of the Lord. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you. Loving the weather these days. Um, like Pastor Sam said, I will be on vacation soon. I'll be preaching today, and then I'm going to be on break for the next four Sundays. Uh, that time is reserved not for me to play. It's uh, actually a lot of planning goes into it. Um, got to prep for the second half of the year of summer seminars to prepare, prepare for, etc. Also, it's a time for, for me to kind of reconnect with the, the kids uh, that I, that I don't, don't get to do uh, during the regular school year. Um, and you may actually see me during certain weeks because for the most part, I'll, I'll still be in the area, okay? I got nowhere to go. I'll be a, a planning to travel to California for a few days. California is a good place to visit occasionally, not, not a good place to live, just to, you know, just keep that in mind. Um, <laughs> but in my absence, I want to encourage all of you to take another step or two uh, toward back. Uh, toward getting back to normalcy, I should say, and, and that may mean making a conscious decision to break some bad habits that have set in over the past year, okay? Let's get back to normal soon. Um, virtually all of the elderly have been vaccinated, okay? I mean, the initial worry was that if we catch COVID, they'll catch COVID and die, but that worry is greatly diminished now, and so honestly, if if any of us catch COVID, it's actually not a bad thing, okay? Uh, it's better to kind of naturally become immune to these things. And so let's not live in fear, especially given how things have been uh, progressing these past few weeks and uh, as the uh, economy starts to open up even more, okay? All right, well, today uh, we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts, and as we said before, you know, these early Christians not only experienced outward persecution that sought to destroy them, but they experienced like these inward conflicts uh, that could have very easily divided them as God's people. And, and we see uh, an example here today in our passage. I, I broke down the message in three parts. Uh, part one, I just want to reestablish the fact that there, there is no such thing as a problem-free church. That's part one. And then 
Part two, kind of getting to the meat of things here, uh, we're going to look at the, the, an uncommon solution uh, that is offered here uh, in our passage. And the, the solution was to actually appoint servant leaders, right? These are the first deacons uh, that the church appoints and commissions to do the work of ministry. And then part three, the fruit of overcoming division through not worldly means, but through gospel means, okay? So that'll be the the progression, okay? Uh, Part one, no such thing as a problem-free church. As you would imagine, uh, because of my work, I know of many incidents where a pastor or a church member was hurt by someone else in the church. I mean, it happens quite often. Uh, I'm sure that most of us here would be able to share a personal story of how you've been hurt by others in the church. But that kind of stuff, it shouldn't surprise us, uh, since the church is simply a gathering of flawed people who recognize their need for grace, okay? And even pastors are flawed, and so... I'm sure I've heard some of you as well over the past few years, and um, if, I, if I have, please let me know so I can apologize, okay? Uh, now, do I think the church has far less problems than the problems, you know, the worldly secular institutions are plagued with? Yes, I do. I think the church has far less problems, but that does not mean the church is problem-free, Uh, I want you to think about with me uh, about the early church that we've been studying together for the past several weeks, okay? I mean, can you think of a church that is as loving and as gracious and as generous as this one that we see here? I want you to to be reminded how the the writer Luke describes his church at the end of chapter 4. Incredible picture. There was, he says, not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. It's this incredible picture of generosity. I mean, do you know personally anyone who has sold their land and homes so that the proceeds would go to serve the needs of the church? Do you know anyone like that? Anyone come to mind? I mean, if it happens, it doesn't happen all that much. But when the church was just beginning, it was a fairly common occurrence, according to the writer Luke. I mean, what a blessing it must have been to be part of such a generous community. And yet, even this church, even this gracious, generous, beautiful church was accused of neglecting others. This is a shocking thing, right? As beautiful as the early church was, it too faced inward conflict that would have done some serious damage to the church if it wasn't properly handled. So what exactly happened? Well, there was tension Created. It was getting worse and worse between these two groups, the EM and the. Just kidding. The, 
I'm only half kidding because there are very real similarities between our modern-day immigrant context and the context of the ancient early church. Okay? But the actual two groups mentioned here are not KM and EM. Rather, one group is called the Hellenists, and the other group is called the Hebrews. So who were the Hellenists and the Hebrews? Well, simply put, the Hellenists were people like us in the sense that they weren't as familiar with their native tongue because they were part of the diaspora, meaning they lived outside of their homeland. They lived outside of Jerusalem, and they were dispersed throughout the Mediterranean world. Okay? And just as our primary language is English and not Korean or not Chinese, their primary language was Greek, right? not Hebrew and not Aramaic. In contrast, the other group, right, the, the Hebrews, they were more like the Cam, and they were the majority at the time, right? They were like the Cam in the sense that they spoke their native language fluently, and they were not as familiar with the Greek language or culture. So not surprisingly, when two different cultures come together, right, you're, you're bound to have some problems, especially when the number of people are in the thousands, as we've been studying. It's not a small group anymore. It's a massive group, a mega church. It says in verse 1, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint, oh, people are complaining, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So let's think about what's going on here exactly, all right? There was some form of daily distribution that was implemented to help provide for those who were in need. Right? In our day, this would be called mercy ministry. Right? There was a mercy ministry that was established in the church, and this is a very good ministry to have. But guess what? You know, when you put yourself out there right, to help others, or right, when you commit yourself to helping, serving others, you need to also be willing to endure the pain and the complications of serving others. You know what I mean? Right? You understand? Because like, whoever chose to set up this kind of mercy ministry, they did the right thing. But look what happens here. People are now accusing them. They're accusing this church who's trying to help people of, of unfair treatment. This must have been discouraging, right? A complaint by the Hellenists, or let's put it in our context, the complaint by the EM members arose against the Hebrews or the KM congregation because our people were being neglected in some way, and we were not happy. I think it's pretty accurate to look at it that way. So imagine how the Hebrews felt, or in our case, Imagine how the KM would feel if they heard a complaint coming from us, right? A KM who has helped establish our ministry, and without them, we would not exist, right? Instead of expressing the gratitude coming from us, they hear complaining. And so what do you think their, their initial response would be, their natural human response would be, right? I mean, if, if I try to put myself in their shoes... 
Or if I try to put myself in the shoes of the Hebrews here, honestly, I would be thinking, you know, look, guys, we're doing our best, you young, immature, <laughs> foolish people. We're doing our best. Do you think it's easy to manage 10,000 people and on top of that keep track of who all the widows are? That would be my natural human response. Not a very good one, but honestly, that's sort of, I think, how most people would respond. Now, what's good here was that there really is no indication that the Hebrews intentionally overlooked the Hellenist widows. In other words, this was an honest mistake caused by cultural differences. And these kinds of oversights happen all the time in every culture, regardless of one's skin color. And it usually stems from the majority group's inability to understand the minority group's language or cultural sensibilities. Right? I mean, the CAM doesn't quite understand our context, and so, of course, they're going to overlook some things. So early on in our own church, right, it's true. Many of us, some of you are still here. Those of you who, are, who, were, <laughs> who were there early with us starting in 2009, many of you did feel like, and you were complaining, and I, I have recordings, you know, I... I was writing down notes. Many of you are complaining, feeling like the EM was being neglected by the church leadership at the time, which is basically all KM. But that dynamic, as you know, gradually changed as we became less of a minority and more of an equal partner over the years. As I must say... Even within our EM, there have been members who felt like, you know, you EM leaders, let me say we, I'm part of it, that you as leaders could do a better job in caring for those who feel a bit marginalized, right? Do you hear our cries, EM leaders, right? Can you help us out here? I remember one year, it was a married couples who were like, this is a few years ago, okay, not recently. I would say about maybe four, four or five years ago, I started hearing this, right? Married couples would say, why does our church only care about the singles? Right? And in the same year, no joke, the exact same year, we had singles who would say, why does our church only care about the married couples? And then the college students, of course, would say, what about us? You know, <laughs> what about us? Right, the most entitled in our church. I'm just don't be offended. We love you, college students. At least Pastor Sam loves you, okay? <laughs> it's a joke. Um, I, had, I had nine o'clock members, nine o'clock, you know, we have two congregations, right? Some people claim we have two churches because there are two congregations who don't really interact. Uh, there's some truth to that, have to admit. But we had 9 o'clock congregation members come to me and say, Pastor Paul, why, why is it that only the 11 o'clock members get to hear testimonies, you know? <laughs> why, is our, why is our 9 o'clock service so stripped down, you know? Um, and so I had to think about how to better serve the 9 o'clock congregation. Okay, so now, and I know it's not perfect, but it kind of evened out, you know? <laughs> These are real problems, so what is a leadership supposed to do? You know, thankfully, 
I, I believe we can learn from the early church here and observe some principles that, that they sought to apply in our story today. Okay, and so let's shift gears a bit. Part two, uh, an uncommon solution. And their solution was to appoint servant leaders, the first deacons of the church. I didn't want to share this part, but I, I believe uh, given our culture, and this maybe you can consider this a, a foretaste of one of the summer seminars that I'll be leading. Uh, but let me say that secular social justice warriors are really good about exposing the kinds of injustices or inequities that may exist between a, a, a majority culture and a minority culture in any given context. Uh, they're just kind of wired to detect these things, all right? Um, and and that, that part of the social justice movement is not the part I, I have a huge problem with. I mean, that, that's not why I've been speaking out against this secular social justice movement over the past few years. You know, I mean, one problem is definitely that we, we, we operate out of different moral standards, so sometimes... They call it an injustice when it's actually a justice, and they call it justice, they call something that's just, and call, they call it an injustice, and so everything's kind of, well, a lot of times it's kind of wacky, right? Um, it's arbitrary morality. But, you know, from a Christian vantage point, it actually doesn't take a lot of intellect or wisdom to identify the injustices around us, and at least most of them. Uh, sometimes it's not very clear, but for the most part, the basic things are, are pretty evident, but what I want to say here is that what clearly ought to separate true believers from the rest of the unbelieving world is in the solutions that we offer to achieve true justice. It's in the solutions. Um, the world has its methods, and the church has its method, but it's not our method, it's God's method, and it's centered on the gospel. Let me give you uh, an example. I, I shared this with some of you already. I forget exactly when. It may, been, it may have been a few years, but, uh, or it may have been last year. <laughs> I honestly forget. But I, I, I was pursuing a degree at Princeton Seminary many years ago. Uh, <clears throat> it was a THM, and uh, I, I was interested in taking a class. This was when I was rather, uh, I was a bit clueless regarding, you know, critical race theory. And so I, I, I had no idea how, how prominent it would become in our day. But a class was titled Asian American Theology. And I thought it would be like a good class to take because I, I wanted to know like something about the Chinese church, the Korean church, and how, how it's sort of developed over the, you know, uh, past century or whatnot. I thought, I thought it was going to be about that, right? So I took it. It was led by one of the, I guess, the only Korean-American uh, professor at the time there. Um, but turned out every single class, I, I, I do not exaggerate, every single class, he was basically unpacking CRT, you know, critical race theory, and in front of the entire class, just mocking, ridiculing, uh, bashing his white colleagues on campus, right? And I thought it was just going to be one class, but it kept on going throughout the semester. And so, of course, you know, I'm a, I'm a truth speaker. I'm a truth teller, yes? 
So I, 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 didn't, I didn't want to make the class feel uncomfortable, but, you know, I had to say something. Right? I can't just, you know, uh, sit quietly acting dumb. And so as he's doing this and as he's accusing, you know, every single white person to be a racist on campus, I'm, I'm like, uh, Professor, you know, what, what you're doing, that's also racist, right? And, you know, it's clear to me that all of us have these racist tendencies and, you know, I don't think this is proper. And I was thinking to myself, this, this, like, is this real? Like, what are, what are we doing here? Is this really a Christian seminary? <laughs> God, God cannot be pleased with what we're doing here, right? But I made it very clear to him, like, what you're doing is racist. And that made him very uncomfortable, right? Um, I didn't realize at the time, but that's basically the world's method of overcoming cultural division or solving racial injustice, right? They're, they're seeking to overcome injustice with uh, more injustices, or they're, overcome, they're trying to overcome racism with, with more racism, and it just doesn't work. It actually makes the problem far worse than it is. If there's one thing that's become even more clear to me over the past year or so is that the church alone has the means to produce true unity because true unity can only come through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Right? True unity, right, this overcoming of division cannot come by government trying to enforce these laws. Right? True unity cannot come by indoctrinating students in the classroom in, in an effort to make them anti-racist, according to Ibram Kendi or Robin D'Angelo, right, two secular, basically, high priests of our day. But true unity can only come through a life transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the reason why the early church was able to overcome its own cultural division is precisely because it sought to live out the gospel of grace and peace instead of being fixated upon this constant accusation and condemnation and judgment pointed to other people. And so I, I want to uh, take some time to draw out three principles from this passage that basically, in my mind, summarizes the approach the early church took in overcoming their own cultural division. Okay, and more can be said, but, you know, for time's sake, I had to keep it to three. I like three. I like the triad, okay, the Trinitarian formulation. So I always try to keep things in threes. Uh, number one, here's the first principle. Acknowledging our own human limitations. Right? This first principle is important because it requires humility. You know, think about it. If the apostles were interested in wielding more power, right, in accumulating more power and authority for themselves, right, they would have tried to silence the critics. Right? They would have wanted to, wanted to be the ones calling all the shots from the top, but that's not what they did. Right? They, they delegated. They released power and authority to others. Right? They recognized 
their human limitations, and they said, okay, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. They're people, men with a good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And we, we will choose our lane. We, we, we will stick to our lane. Basically, they say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That was their God-given calling to focus on that ministry. It's word ministry. It's prayer ministry, okay? And so the apostles recognized what their first priorities were supposed to be as apostles, and they stayed within their own lane by devoting themselves to God's word and to prayer. Now, sometimes that's not easy to do. It takes humility to recognize your limitations. And in regards to the problem of serving the widows in a a fair way, in an equitable way, they had seven godly men appointed and entrusted with that work. They weren't micromanaging them. They said, hey, you guys, you know, we, we fully trust that you will take care of this and resolve this, this problem. And, and that's how ministry should be done for the most part. You know? um, and these men were the first deacons of the church. Okay? A deacon literally means servant, as you should know. And without these godly servants who were willing to sacrifice, I want to emphasize, sometimes that's lost, it, you know, I remember uh, in 2009 asking our small group of people, our members we had, hey, have you ever thought of serving as elders or deacons? Have you ever dreamed about that? You know, because I was hoping that we'd become that kind of church one day. And uh, one of the immediate responses was, well, uh, it depends on how much work it's going to entail. Like, how much, how much sacrifice? And it's true. Like if, if you want to serve a larger body of Christ, right, it involves much sacrifice. It does. You know? When everybody's like hiding because of COVID, guess what? Right? The officers, the leaders of the church, they're still called to come and serve and worship and pray, right? And maintain the church facility, Right? and reach out to people. That, that's how it's supposed to be. It, it takes a lot of sacrifice. It's not, a, not, not an easy work. And so we see here, right, these servants were willing to sacrifice their own comforts. I mean, who wants to serve 10,000 plus people and sort out, all who are the widows? And you know, like, who wants to get entangled with that mess? Naturally, as human, human beings, we don't. We don't want to. We have other stuff we want to do. Like, who, wants to, who wants to live that messy life, you know, that's a lot of entanglement, you know? You know, helping people who are suffering, you know, experiencing hardship. You think that's easy? That's why social workers, they, they, ha- they have it the toughest, you know? They, their suicide rate is like the highest of any, any profession. It's not easy work. It takes sacrifice. It takes laying down your comforts to serve the larger body. And I tell you, the church would not have been able to avoid further division without these godly men. Their ministry was essential. And so this kind of delegation of responsibility is so important if the church is to remain healthy. Because there's there's absolutely no way the church can 
properly be cared for only through the work of pastors and elders. There's no way, okay? Our staff, we, we did our best this past year. I think we honestly did our best, but there are so many areas that were neglected, you know? Um, so it wasn't really a great year for ministry. I know, and even now, people are just kind of, I don't know, I don't know what's, hap- what's happening with, with probably like 30% of the church. We need servants to rise up and uh, be activated in ministry again. It's like, who helps maintain our facility, do you think? Right? Who, who comes early on Sunday to ensure that we're, we're going to be ready to worship as a community? Who's supposed to coordinate the meals and snacks to encourage greater fellowship and intimacy among us? Or who's supposed to reach out to parents who just had a baby? And, and, and tend to them. Right, who's going to tend to the single mom who doesn't have money to pay rent? Who manages our finances so that we, we could wisely steward our resources as a church? Right? All of these ministries are related to the work of the deacon. These are, this is diaconal ministry. And if you're involved in any of this kind of work, You may not have officially been ordained as a deacon, but you are serving as part of our diaconal ministry. Brothers and sisters, when a a church has godly elders and deacons serving together, acknowledging their own human limitations and understanding each other's lanes, that's when the church is able to best reflect Jesus' love and care for his people, right? Think of the elder as the one devoted to word ministry primarily. Think of the deacon as the one devoted to deed ministry, right? The doing of things. The church is set up this way because Jesus' ministry to the world was always done in both word and deed together. And so when we are faithful to this model as a church, the gospel is most clearly seen through us, you know? We need both. We need faithful members serving both of these wings. Principle number two, encouraging the marginalized among us to be actively involved in the life of the church. Uh, This point may not seem evident to you right away, but all of the first deacons here in our passage, were chosen, and I can't say this with like 100% confidence, but many scholars argue based on the names that all of the first deacons here chosen were from the Hellenist group, right? not the Hebrew group, right? based on their name. It's like in our context here, like if I gave you a list of our church's deacons, right, you would immediately be able to discern which deacons are of the KM and which deacons are of the EM based on the names. You know, like you have like, you read, oh, this isn't Korean, Hong Yong or Im Young Yu. That's a KM deacon or elder, right? But then if you, you know, look at the list, oh, there I see Danny Bay, you know, Jun. okay, must be a, same thing, same thing here, right? Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, uh, this would have been, okay, 
yeah, these are, these are Greek names. It right? must be from the Hellenist group. And so the fact that the Hebrews were able to allow this particular problem to be handled by the Hellenists in its entirety, it, it tells me something very important. It tells me that there was a significant level of trust shared between the two groups. Because without trust, you can't, you, can't do, you, can't, you can't entrust something to someone if you don't trust them, right? That's by definition. I mean, there's, there's no way the majority group here would be able to do this if they were suspicious in any way of the Hellenist motivation you know, or intent. Like if they knew the Hellenists were just kind of out to care for themselves and had no interest in the broader church, why would they say, okay, yeah, you, you, you take care of this problem? It doesn't work that way. Life does not work that way. Something very similar happened in our church around 2013. <clears throat> uh, the elders of our church uh, literally gave me a place at their table. And this, for those of you who may not know, uh, this never happens in well, it rarely happens in an in a immigrant church context because um, KM leaders tend to be very suspicious toward the EM and the EM leaders because they've seen so many cases where the EM comes in, EM pastor comes in, serves for about two, three years, builds a coalition, and then leaves, right? Just steals members away from the church, you know, plants a church maybe like two miles down the road, right? And it just creates headache, Kim, leaders like, what, how disloyal and, you know, how arrogant, just, just broke up the church, what, what a, you know, so that's, that's what they've been thinking. And so when I came in, uh, they, they were suspicious, like, who is this guy? Right? He looks suspicious, he's bald, you know, is he, is he really a Christian? <laughs> um... um and so it took me a good three years to actually build trust. And after three years, right, they said, hey, um, we'd like to invite you to become part of the elder board, right, what we call the session. And that's a big deal, you know. And I recognized that, wow, they, they must now trust me. Right? And, and they were able to do that because they were convinced that I wasn't just here Right, to look out for the EM, but I was here to care for the entire church, like for me to do what's best for the whole church, not just for Cornerstone. Right? That had to happen. If people are suspicious, they cannot do this kind of thing. And this same principle has held true, and you know, we're not perfect, but we, we try to apply this kind of principle whenever there is a need that rises in whatever ministry we have. I remember, uh, you know, when married couples asked for more attention, and it's true, you know, uh, our married couples, they weren't always cared for. We didn't have good leadership over them all the time. And so when they, when they expressed concern, uh, we assigned someone from among them, right, same principle, we assigned someone among them right, to serve as leaders, right, to be a bridge and to, to care, properly care for them. Uh, and it's been working for the most part, okay? Now, COVID has made things, made, made things difficult, but that, that, that's been the principle we've been applying. Uh, I also want to just briefly encourage all of you who may have just joined the church as members over the past couple years or so. You're, you're very new, 
right? And you may feel like a minority. You may sometimes feel like you're marginalized because it is common, I think most of us would recognize this, that in any given church, the OGs, right, the old guards, they're the ones who are the ones filling up all these positions, whether it's on worship team or welcoming or whatever, children, you know, you know, because we know the culture, we've established ourselves. So the OG is the ones that are basically doing all the work, and, and you, you as a newcomer, like, you know where to serve, you, you feel uncomfortable. Uh, is there space for, for me to serve, you're asking, you know? Is there any, any space for me? Um, I want to encourage you to make your wishes known. If you want to serve, okay, we want to do our best to uh, give you a place, a, a, a seat at the table, so to speak, right? And we want to invite you to serve alongside of us, right? And that's also in keeping with this principle, okay? Um, principle number three, and then I'll move on to the last part. Encouraging members who are critical to be part of the solution by serving the church themselves. Okay, we see this here, right? Uh, the Hellenists have an issue, okay, then people from among you should rise up as leaders and be servants, right? It makes sense. Uh, we do not think it's healthy for you to just complain. So whenever I hear a complaint, I'm, I'm, I, I usually stop someone and say, okay, do you have a solution? <laughs> Don't just complain, offer a solution. Be a problem solver. That's sort of my initial reaction. Not that I want to dismiss the complaint, but it's very easy to complain. We all have complaints. Okay? Life is not perfect. We all have complaints. But the hard thing is, can you come up with a solution? Like if you have a legitimate grievance, then great. You, know, we, you may share that. We want to hear it. But again, do your best to offer a solution. Okay? Better yet, be willing to be part of the solution by becoming someone willing to sacrifice and serve for the sake of the larger body of Christ. Right? That would even be a better solution. Right? I found this principle to be uh, pretty helpful in, in leading the ministry. Like if I hear someone complaining about the media, you know, like why is the sound so inconsistent? Okay? Even today I'm kind of feeling it's a little bit compared to 9 o'clock, you know, I, I, I sound different. Why is it, well, are you complaining? The media team is looking for help, you know, especially during 9 o'clock. Feel free to volunteer. We'll train you, okay? If you're not willing to serve, quiet down the complaints, please, right? What? That the church isn't welcoming enough? Well, guess what? The welcoming team is looking for help. You know, would you like to serve as part of the welcoming team to make our church a more welcoming place? Seriously. I've heard... Pastor Paul, the church's toilet is clogged. Oh, yeah? Well, let me show you where the plunger is. You know, you go and you can unclog it yourself. Thank you very much. Okay, I, I'm, I'm being comical here, but you, you get the point, right? Am I the, am I the, the, uh, <laughs> the one who's supposed to go? I, I've done it. I, I will do it gladly, okay? But and I'm not saying that it's beneath me. Trust me, okay? Um, I've done a lot of dirty work, unimaginable work around this church, okay? So it's not beneath me. I'm just saying <clears throat> there are these lanes that we ought to keep. My, my primary role ought to be in 
investing time in word ministry and prayer ministry. I'm not, saying I'm, I'm not saying I'm an apostle, <laughs> but the, the, the work of the elder is that, right, of, of, you know, investing in word and in prayer, primarily, okay? Um, part three, part three. Problem in, I, got, I got problems deviating from my manuscript. I got, like, off tangent. Part three. The fruit of overcoming division through gospel means. So there is fruit. If you honor the model here, there is good fruit that bears. And so what you see here, you have, you have like these two groups that are in tension. In our case, you have the Hellenists versus the Hebrews. In our culture today, you have blacks versus whites. Things are very tense. You have the rich versus the poor. Right? Historically, it's always been tense between the two groups. You have the Ivy League educated to generalize, versus the two-year college grads. You know, they don't get along because it's just very different, huge gap between them. You have the X generation or generation X versus what? The millennials. Okay, we try to get along, okay? It's, it's been hard, but we try to love each other, right? You don't understand me, I don't understand you, uh, but in Christ we're one, amen? Uh, there, there's the American educated you know, second-generation pastor versus the Korean-educated first-generation pastor. We, we haven't gotten along all the time either. Okay? There, there are these natural conflicts. You know, from the world's perspective, these groups are completely at odds with each other. But the beauty of the church is that people who would normally never associate with each other are made one. That, that's what the gospel is able to do. And so the result of God's people overcoming division through such gospel means is this. Verse 7 is very helpful. Here's the result of, of this, this power of the gospel infusing the church. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and Here's what's interesting. Uh, Luke, Luke decides to include this part. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's easy to overlook, but this is huge because we're talking about Jewish priests, Jewish priests who were once vehemently opposed to Jesus, and these are the ones who fumed in anger when apostles would accuse them of murdering Jesus. Even in the prior chapter, there were, these priests were very, very angry. And, but here we see that they became obedient to the faith, a great many of them. Because they witnessed a unity that they've never been able to witness before. Right? Their hardened hearts melted. And they couldn't help but to recognize that the power of Christ was real. Like if these groups are doing life together, Jesus must be real. And I want, I want to experience that kind of grace. John 13, 35, by this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is, this is the kind of unity that the world does not know of. 
Only the gospel can offer this kind of overcoming of division. Two enemies sharing in unity, in love, being at peace with each other. When the church embodies the gospel and demonstrates an uncommon unity such as this, the world notices and desires to be a part of it. As part of our witness as a church. For in one spirit, 1 Corinthians says, we were all baptized in one body, Jews or Greeks, like two groups that were once like oil and water, slaves or free, again, with like oil and water. How can these two groups love each other, do life together, serve each other? All of these groups, Jews, Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. How is this possible? Well, it's only possible through the gospel of grace, the work of Christ. When we as a church demonstrate such unity by serving one another and those around us, again, people notice and they give thanks. Let me share a couple of notes that I received over the course of the past year or so uh, as evidence of this kind of work. I want you to know that virtually every positive comment that I've received about the church made by outsiders they can be directly traced to an act of service. It can be traced to people serving sacrificially on behalf of the church. Here's one note. We're surrounded by white families, essentially. I think there may be one or two exceptions, but you know, it's a white neighborhood, okay? Uh, for the most part, they don't know what to do with us, um, but over the past few years, we've made an effort to reach out to our neighbors and bless them and serve them, okay? And so here, here's one example. Uh, he actually reached out to me first, asking if the church can help repair a fence that was torn down because of a fallen tree, and so I quickly notified some people, and they repaired the fence. And, and this is his, I guess, thank you note. Good afternoon, Pastor Bang. The, the new fence looks good. Your parishioners did a nice job. We appreciate your taking care of this so quickly. We have young grandchildren that love to run, jump, and kick balls. The fence helps keep them where they should be. Thanks again. Peace. And uh, Jim Phillips is his name. Right. It's not the first note he sent me. He, he's, regular. he's a regular. He likes to send thank you notes. Uh, another note <clears throat> that I brought here. This is, this is more recent. This is uh, right after some of you, mainly sisters, right? Uh, Michelle Shin was a big part of this. I think Diana and Min, and um, sorry if I'm not mentioning every, every name. But uh, dear Cornerstone members, your Christmas baskets delivered to my home for the past several years are deeply appreciated. Each lovely basket contained delicious treats, cookies, candies, specialty gel. I don't know why she's telling me this because, you know, I, I kind of know already know what's in the basket, but okay. She's listing all the items, teas, sparkling juice, hand sanitizer. All were beautifully wrapped and bowed. The usable baskets are a daily reminder of your thoughtfulness. To be remembered in this special way is very meaningful to me. Your church is a blessing for this community, exclamation mark. Please accept my donation to advance your church's work. I shall remember your kindness always. Again, thank you. Peace, joy, blessings, Charlotte Boyce. Right? How is this possible? It's not me. I delegated. 
I, the donation wasn't for me, okay? It was for the church. I, I put the check in the offering basket, okay, just to be clear. Um, our diaconal ministry, right, serve the community, and the response, the result is people thanking not just the church, but praising God as a result, right? That's, that's how it is. Right? This is how you bring people together, right? Not by accusation, not by constant judgment, right? but by acts of grace. Acts of service motivated by gospel living is what bridges people together, okay? Unfortunately, in our culture today, white people, for the most part, are scared to interact with minorities because they don't want to make a mistake and commit like so-called microaggressions. They don't want to be judged or called a racist. And the result is greater alienation and brokenness. Right? Don't you see this around you? Like, more recently, I've noticed some certain white people are more standoffish. And so, you know, there's a, even this past week, I, I made it clear as to what my stance is, you know. Um, and once I, once I became open about my own personal beliefs, that's when conversations and friendships were able to form. Seriously. Right? Uh, if you treat people suspiciously, they will also be suspicious of you. They would not know how to, how to relate to you. Right? That's not how, you unite, how people are united. You need to treat people with grace. So let's not use, brothers and sisters, the world's method to overcome division. They do not work because they're built on too many lies. God has given us the gospel that is far better, and the gospel is what works because it's built upon a foundation of grace, which is what we all need the most. And because it points to the only one who is able to unite us to God and to one another. So as we look forward to another week, let's resolve to embody this gospel of peace as we love and serve those around us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Dear Father, we acknowledge that we're in a, in a world that is broken. We are a broken people, corrupted by sin and bound by our own human limitations. And in order to fix what we consider to be broken, we confess that we have oftentimes made matters worse by our constant complaints, accusations, and acts of self-pity. Jesus, who was sinless, had all the right to complain as well, but instead he chose a path of service and sacrifice by laying his life down for those who least deserve it. May we then, as your people, place our hope in Christ, follow in his steps, and choose to sacrifice and serve others as well. And by doing so, we trust that you will begin to heal the division and brokenness we experience in our marriages, in our homes, in our communities, and in our world. By your grace, may we as a church be a counterculture that draws others to yourself. All this for the sake of your glory and our joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.